All right, guys. Well, today, tell you what, studying for covenant theology is um, is not easy. Uh, one of the reasons why is because I every week I kind of do this to myself, but I don't really know where to where to stop because <laughs> it just kind of goes on and on and on and on and on and. You know, I'm thinking about the covenant of redemption, and I'm thinking, where do you cut that off at? You know, it just goes on and on. Now, we did not finish the last notes, and that's what I want to do today is finish up on some of the last notes, and then today we'll kind of introduce the covenant of redemption, Lord willing, and then we'll get, we'll, we'll look at some of the key texts that go along with that, that covenant, uh, and we'll kind of just kind of do a simple overview of that, and then Lord willing, next week maybe we'll dive a little deeper and spend some more time concentrated on some of those key texts and just go a little bit deeper into the exegesis of, of uh, the covenant of redemption, okay? Anybody have any questions about the last lesson or anything like that? Uh, feel free on your notes, to if you're, if you're taking notes, to write down questions that you may have. There's never a wrong time to, ant, to ask. Uh, I really, really mean that. If you, if you hear me throw out a word or a term or a phrase or a concept and you're not really overly familiar with it, uh, don't you're not going to make me feel bad if we just kind of slow down and talk about it, okay? So feel free to to ask anything in that regard. No one going once, going twice. Okay, huh? You got one? Yes, ma'am. What is dispensationalism? That's an that's a really important question because in covenant theology we are going to be disagreeing with dispensationalism. So we have to determine what is dispensationalism, right? And I've been trying to, you know, I guess if you get me in a private conversation, I might be a little bit more strident. But in a public setting like this, I try to be generous and I try to be amicable and friendly towards my dispensational friends with which I disagree. Uh, but uh, dispens- dispensationalism is just the theology that says that the Bible is structured not around biblical covenants, but it is structured around various dispensations of time. Uh, this became very popular in the Schofield Bible. Uh, Schofield identified seven different dispensations in the Bible that make up the structure of the Bible. Uh, you know, we can't go through a whole representation of dispensationalism, but maybe the most, according to Schofield and the dispensationalists, the most significant issue about dispensationalism, ironically, is 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 what we're studying today. Uh, is is regarding the people of God. Um, dispensationalists would say that um, there are two peoples of God, ultimately. There is the church, and then there is Israel. And never the twine shall meet, type of thing, right? So we keep those two camps completely distinct. So we keep the Israel over here on one side, and God has a certain purpose and a certain program for Israel. And then the church is on this side, and God has a separate purpose and a separate distinct uh, um, identity for for the church, and uh, yeah. Would it be uh, unfair to say that that's two different brides, or give the picture of two different brides? Well, yeah. So you know, it's like let the criticisms come, right? Like we have all kinds of different ways that we, uh, and I'm going to actually mention that, but but yeah. So they would say like you know because that's one of the problems is if you look at the Old Testament, you have you know all over the Old Testament, Israel identified as the bride. Right, but that bride metaphor language is then picked up in the New Testament and applied to the church. You know, so it's kind of like, which one is it? And those metaphors go on and on and on. The vineyard, 
right? John, uh, Jesus mentions in John chapter 15, right? The good shepherd, right? Uh, Psalm 23, they would say that's in reference to Israel and Yahweh. Well, now we know that in John chapter 10, that's in reference to, that's in reference to uh, uh, Christ and the church. So you have these kind of connections. Yes, Mike? I saw you. No need to panic. I thought you were going to start jumping up and down for a second. Let's go on with the lesson, right? <laughs> Trying to be nice and not accuse people. No, I would say no. Uh, I, I don't think so. I, I think uh, that's a conscience issue. They're trying to do the best they can. Uh, the Bible says, you know, we all see through a glass dimly, and we're all trying to interpret the scriptures the best we can. You know what I mean? I would say if you know the truth and you still contradict the truth, then it is sin. So I think that once you've arrived at the truth and you see the truth for what it is, but let's say you want to uphold this interpretation because of tradition or you know you just happen to be in a network of people that everyone believes this and you don't want to make any waves, you just, you just kind of go along with it, I would say then it is a violation of your conscience, you know what I mean? And so you have to be, you know, the Bible says, blessed is the man that's not condemned by what he approves. So if you if you know in your heart of hearts that you approve of the theology of covenant theology or something else other than dispensationalism, and you still just kind of toe the party line, I mean, I don't know how much integrity there is in that. You know what I mean? Yes, sir. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were saying <laughs> Just putting your hand in a comfortable yeah, position. No, I know we're being recorded, so I'm just going to, like, reserve. <laughs> <laughs> well, as long as your comments are godly, nothing to worry about. Uh, <laughs> okay, so let's talk about this. Um, on your notes, uh, we talk about the characteristics and features of covenant theology. I wanted to talk about this because... I just realized that as we go on talking about covenant theology, I'm going to assume a bunch of this stuff, and and some of it's going to be kind of like new to, to you, or, or maybe you haven't thought about it along these lines. But one of the very first things that we need to talk about, the features or characteristics of covenant theology, is the unity of Scripture. Um, and, and so what I'm arguing is that this is something that covenant theology really helps us to see, helps us to do, is we understand from uh, covenant theology really helps us to see the organic unity of the Bible, that the Bible all goes together. For example, just give you one example of this, right? Um, And and it's not always covenantally, but just overall, uh, we believe that the Bible is one cohesive unit of thought. Uh, It is presenting one organic message that is progressively unfolding throughout the history of redemption. You see what I'm saying? And so this becomes really important as these points almost kind of build on one another. But just give you an example. Um, I've asked this trick question before. We did this at, I did this in my, my message in T, the TEC conference. I asked you, when you think of the book of Exodus, who is the primary person that you think about? Moses, right? And I asked, that, and that's right, and you would be right in saying that, but what I would say is, how many of you think of Abraham primarily? In, in, in Exodus? Probably not, right? You don't make that, you know, Abraham, that's, that was Genesis, you know, we've gotten past that now, right? But what have I, what have I told you that everything that happens in Exodus is based on Abraham? You see what I'm saying? This, to me, shows the organic character of Scripture. Turn to the book of Exodus, and let me just 
give you a couple of texts to show you this. Uh, we know what the dilemma is in, in Exodus. What's the problem in Exodus? What is the great crisis that has arisen? Anyone? What's that? Yeah, the enslavement of the people of God, the captivity of Israel, right? That is the major problem in the book of Exodus. How does God answer that problem? Or even maybe more specifically, why does God resolve to answer that problem? Exodus chapter 2, verse 24, it says this, So God heard the groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So what motivated God in the Exodus, to redeem his people. It was his covenant commitment that he had made. How, how long ago? Here's a question. How long ago? How long ago was, was that covenant made? Come on. I'm thinking Galatians kind of gives us the answer. 400 years. That's right. It's an old Bob Marley song. Four, never mind. 400 years. But uh, no, really forget that. You're right. We are being recorded. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Bob Marley, not a godly man, he's a Rastafarian, denied Jesus Christ. Although there are some reports that say he converted on his deathbed. I have no way of verifying that. I hope so. I hope so. Um, okay, so another one. Let's go to another one. Uh, go to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32, as Israel sinned and God was tempted to destroy them, how does, God, how does Moses petition the Lord? How does Moses petition the Lord when Israel has sinned so grievously that God is ready to wipe Israel out as a people? Why does Israel have to continue on as a people? Moses, very perceptively, right, he, in a sense, prays God's covenants back to him. Wow. Uh, 32.13. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore... That's covenant language of an oath-bound commitment, right? You swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your descendants to the stars of heaven, all the land of which I have spoken, I give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever, right? So right there, right, as Israel is on the precipice of destruction, how does Moses respond? The Abrahamic covenant. Because he knows that God is still bound to that covenant, and that covenant still informs what's going on, um, in the history of Israel, 400 years later. Yes, sir. I don't want to take this off on a tangent, but I okay. do have a question about the next verse. Okay. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. It says that God changed his mind. Anthropomorphic language for just understanding God's mercy and his grace. Um, of course, we know on one level God does not change his mind. Uh, right? There's even a verse, I can't think of the verse, that says I, man, God is not a man that he should repent or the Son of Man, that he should change his mind. So how do we resolve those two seemingly paradoxical statements, right, or discrepancies? Well, on the one hand, God is speaking anthropomorphically so that we understand that God is becoming like a man who has changed his mind from what he was about to do. On the other hand, we're being given a description of God's ontological character, right, that in his, in his essence or what is essential to God, he does not change his mind, right? God doesn't learn. He doesn't absorb knowledge. He doesn't go from one state to another. Uh, so that's, that's, 
since we're not take, going on a tangent, that's my si- quick, simple answer, right? Yes, sir. Yeah, you think, look at me preparing for this lesson. I'm going tangent, tangent, tangent. Is Moses the type of the mediator? Of course. Absolutely. You're going to see. It's just like for us, Christ intercedes on our behalf to the Father. Based on God's covenant faithfulness. That's right. And, and uh, you're going to even see in the book of Exodus, um, you know, Moses, so much a type of Christ that Moses says, you know, that once again, God threatening to destroy the people. He says, let me be blotted out, right, on behalf of the people. So there, the mediator of the covenant, offering himself as a substitute. So very typological uh, imagery there from Moses. Yes, sir? Yeah, okay, so speaking of the unity of Scripture, is that yeah. you think in the whole we see unity? But also there would be disunity as well, right? That's right. There's unity and diversity. So it's almost like diversity in unity or unity in diversity. So in all the many aspects or facets of Scripture, all the, the various parts of the Bible, through all the variety and all the, all the different compartments of Scripture, there is an organic thread that goes through it all. You see what I'm saying? Linking everything together. This is just this is just one little example. Yes, sir. Redemption is the word. Right? Redemption. That's the theme. Yes, sir. Right. That's and the unity you're talking about. Correct, because that's the message that keeps being unfolded. Exactly, and that's what the, uh, covenant theologians point to when they talk about redemptive historical hermeneutics, is tracing the plan of redemption through the various epics of the Bible, right? Any question? Yes, sir. Can you touch on uh, anthropomorphic? Anthropomorphic language just means language that is uh, uh, that that is on a hu- on the human plane, right? That we can understand and that we can relate to. It's part of God's condescension that God is basically coming down to our level, right? To to give us a very simple uh, illustration of what He thinks about an issue or what His actions should cause us to understand about God. You see what I'm saying? Yes, sir. I've received this question before, and it fits exactly here. So if we're dealing with the eternal plan and eternal covenant of God to do X, Y, and Z, and events occur to where he'll say, I'm going to threaten you with this, and then him say, oh, I'm not going to do it because of my... Why even go through the threatening Uh if... It's a good question. Yeah. That's a good question. How would you guys answer that? Anybody have an answer for that? That's a good question. In other words, in other words, if God has already decreed or God has already an eternal covenant that binds him to a certain end, then why does God even threaten in the first place or do that? Yes, sir. I'll make an attempt. I know the covenants have a conditions for a blessing and a curse if there's disobedience. So okay. Would that be where, you know, if they start to stray? That he could chasten them. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. But I think where I'm going with... I'm, you're not wrong. I don't think you're wrong. Where I'm going with yeah. the question is, if he doesn't plan to fulfill on that threatening, mm-hmm. why even make it in the first place? Right. Because they come to repentance, don't they? Yeah. The way I think the answer by saying that it's still true. Uh-huh. That those conditions are true, and so God tells us the truth about yeah. the conditions, even though he gives grace right. to abide by what he wants us to do. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, Calvin, you know, asked the question, you know, if if the prophecy of Jesus was that not a bone in his body would be broken, 
You know, that doesn't mean God gave him unbreakable bones, right? He still has the potential of having his bones broken, right? But even though God had already determined that, so it's almost like what Landon just said, God has means to the end, right? That, that in a sense, we, 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 and I would say also, it also teaches us what is required and what is involved in God's faithfulness and in his mercy is the abating of his wrath, you see, so in the one sense, he's teaching us what is the nature of God's mercy when it's dispensed to us. Well, it's not free, right? It's free for us, but it's not free for him or for Christ specifically, right? So I would say it shows us the great cost of our salvation, you know? That that could be one possible answer. Um, yeah, we're not supposed to be on any tangents, Um <laughs> one other verse that to just to speak about the unity of scripture and I thought this would be a good one just because we're talking about covenants but Ephesians chapter 2 verse 12 I really like this one because this is a this is grammatically a very interesting phrase that you find in the Bible you know it Ephesians chapter 2 verse 12 it says remember that you were at that time separate from Christ excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers and here's the phrase Strangers to the covenants of promise. See what I'm so how, how, how do we understand that? Because we have we're going from we're going from uh, we're we're going. I just got a ding on my phone. I usually have my phone off, but I just got a ding on my Jerry Lewis, ninety-one years old, dead. Yeah. God have mercy, right? Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, uses the phrase, the covenants of promise, showing us that God's multiple covenants are bound by the unity of one promise. And what promise is that? You know, from a covenant theology perspective, we can inform that question, and I would say even go beyond what Paul is trying to state there. But from Paul's perspective, what is he talking about? What is that promise? Yeah, go ahead. The multiplication of Abraham's seed. So the Abrahamic covenant, right? The the promise to Abraham, which I think is first found where? Right? Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. The initial promise is given to Abraham. But but even then, right, if we're going to do, if we're going to be really honest with the Bible, even then, that initial Abrahamic promise in Genesis 12 is really kind of, this is supported by an earlier promise, right? It doesn't take a scholar to see that earlier on in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, a similar promise is given, right? So I don't know that Paul necessarily meant to go back to Genesis 3, 15, but definitely to the Abrahamic promises that, in a sense, is moving all the other covenant administrations forward. Yes, sir? I'm thinking like from a Yes. Why don't? Yes, sir. 
Why don't we turn that, because that's the phrase I was going to eventually, on our next point. What is another way, another characteristic, another feature of covenant theology that's very important? Well, it has regard to the people of God, which is kind of the way we started our class, talking about the, the here's a major distinction between uh, dispensationalism and covenant theology, is this uh, this issue or this matter of God's people. So in Ephesians chapter 2, still there, Right, we we have uh, God very 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 uh, explicitly telling us that His people right are now comprised of two peoples right, but those two peoples have become one. Uh, it's kind of undeniable. Uh, let's just read on verse I guess verse fourteen. For He Himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier, the dividing wall. See that dividing wall is saying that the division. The breach between Jew and Gentile, which spanned millennia of time, that that division is over. Wow. Now, to us, we read that and we just kind of think of it, but if you're a Jew in the first century, (laughs) and you've been taught since birth that Gentiles are unclean dogs outside of the covenant people of God (laughs) and belong to the world of the profane, okay, this is major, this is, uh, you know, this is earth-shaking shift in your in your thinking. Like this, this shook the found the very foundations of of, of Old Testament theology, right? And um, and so the Apostle Paul says, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity which the law commandments contain in ordinances. So that is talking about that the enmity that was there was based on the law. He says, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man. Um, there it is, one new man. And this is, says, thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body, one body to God through the cross, having, having, put, the, having put to death the enmity, verse 16. Verse 17, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both, have our access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers, aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Yeah, now you're part of God's household. So now you can take all those metaphors, the house of God, the body of God, one man. You take all those metaphors, and what do you get? The people of God, as the covenant, as the new covenant has emerged, the people of God has been shown to actually be one, not two, right? And I would even say, um, even going back into the Old Testament, there really is only one people of God, and and that people, if we go back to chapter 1 of Ephesians, that people is ultimately based on election. Uh, so, I mean, if you're a Calvinist, okay, this is maybe as strident as I'm going to get today. If you're a Calvinist, I don't know how you could be a dispensationalist. If you believe in the elect, how could you possibly differ, you know, distinguish two different peoples, right? I mean, we all belong to one chosen people of God. That's it. So it's almost like I need to do a sermon to correct MacArthur when he said, you know, any self-respecting uh, Calvinist should be a dispensational premillennialist or something like that, you know, I should say any self-respecting Calvinist should be a covenantalist, you know what I mean? Because if you really believe in the elect of God, then that is the one body, that is the group of people that God has chosen from all eternity to save through Jesus Christ. 
Uh, but, you know, we, we will have to get into that more and more. A scripture to support that, and, and maybe we don't have time for this one, but First Peter uh, chapter 2, right? I guess we can, I mean, you can go on and on and on, but you can start in verse 4, go all the way to verse 10, um, just to see that unity. Uh, and that's important. Why? Why is that verse so important? And I'll get to you. Why, why, why is that verse so, so important? Landon, what do you think? That's right. That's exactly right. It's because of the Old Testament allusions found in where? Deuteronomy. Well, found in, I'm saying in Peter, where is it found? Oh, oh, like in verse 9, he's quoting Deuteronomy 14 to the people mm-hmm. for God's own possession, yeah. the holy raised, the royal priesthood. Um, all those titles are titles that originally, I guess we could say historically, refer to Israel. But here now, Peter is explicitly attributing these titles to Christians. If you are in Christ, uh, then you are the chosen race, right? So this would be exactly, so this is where, you know, the book of Acts uh, talks about, you know, Paul and Peter, and then also in Galatians 1, they met for a brief time. Oh, man, can you imagine? I would love to be a fly on the wall. I guess I'd have to learn whatever language they were speaking, but... I'd love to be a fly on the wall in that conversation. Peter and Paul talking theology. I mean, that would be just incredible. And I think one of the things they discussed is the nature of God's people. Because what, Pe- what Peter is saying here is exactly what Paul would say in Galatians chapter um, 3. That by faith, you are a child of Abraham. You are a descendant of Abraham, properly speaking, by faith. You are the ultimate descendants of Abraham by faith. Yes, sir. So... Jesus is the new covenant. Is what now? The new covenant. Well, I wouldn't, say, I, don't, I wouldn't say Jesus is the new covenant, but Jesus brought the new covenant, for sure, yeah. Okay. So the new covenant fulfilled, fulfills all God's promises for the yeah. earlier covenants. Yeah, absolutely. So it's all tied in. Yeah, it's all tied in. The unity of Scripture is all together. You know, even when we get to heaven... I mean, what's amazing, Revelation chapter 21, 1 through 4, in heaven, you know, the revelator is quoting the Abrahamic covenant. <laughs> that, that's what we're experiencing in heaven. We're experiencing the Abrahamic covenant. Unbelievable. Yes, sir. I was just going to bring up Galatians 3, because it's talking about really the righteousness that has been uh, brought through um, history as being, uh, uh, the requirement being faith. Right? Yes, sir. And, and starting in verse 7, it says, Therefore be sure that it is those who are the, of the faith who are the sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham. Yeah. Father. Yeah, absolutely. Getting back to what John was saying, the redemptive historical emphasis is very simple. You want to make it very simple here. Write this down, right? What is redemptive historical hermeneutics? Big, you know, scary question. It's very simple. Is tracing the gospel through the whole Bible. That's it. The gospel in all of Scripture. That's what we're talking about. I mean, look at what you just read. Galatians chapter 3, verse 8. The gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham through the Scriptures. That's, that's amazing, right? Um, look at the end of chapter. Read the last verse of chapter th- uh, three, Robert. 
Amazing. Amazing. Yes, ma'am. That just makes me think of um, Ray Howard talking about the people of God being one and not two when they were going in to take the promised land. Yes. Um, Rahab was not an Israelite. Mm-hmm. And yet she helped the spies and they were able to conquer the city and her and her family were saved. Well, those who yeah. in her household were saved. That's right. Um, but yet later on, I mean, she was like a pillar. And do you remember what the Lord told her, if anyone, it, for Rahab? So any of you or your family go outside of the house, what will happen to you? You'll be destroyed. That's right. Yeah. No, that's well, well, a point well taken. The only reason I mention that is because, you know, there's a big question as to Rahab and the scarlet and the thread, right? And what that symbolizes. And people say, oh, that's the blood of Christ. You know, because it's red, it's the blood of Christ. And so people scoff at that and mock that and go, oh, let's see, that's fanciful, allegorical type interpretation. I actually have a modified position on that. Uh, so don't you guys all stone me at once, but <laughs> I actually do think it's very possible that that thread does actually symbolize the atonement of Christ. How? And I don't, it's almost like you have to go backwards before you go forward because Rahab was told to do exactly what the children of Israel were told to do in the Passover. They were to mark their homes, and even the same, I've looked this up, even the same Hebrew phrases are used, if you go outside of your house, you will die, right? The same things that were told exactly to the children of Israel. So it's almost like Rahab, almost typologically of God saving the Gentiles, right, through the same cover over of the atonement. So I don't know. There are, there are a few scholars that would agree with me. <laughs> I found a few. Not many, but a few of them do. Most of them would mock it and say, you know, that that's a stretch. You know what I mean? I don't know. Is anything a str- I don't know. I don't know, guys. Every time I tended to, you know, kind of, I don't want to say undermine the Bible, but anytime I'm tempted to just kind of, just kind of assume those are kind of just little details. And, you know, I don't know, man. <laughs> it's like everything in the Bible has m- meaning, you know, that we'll probably not even know till we get to heaven. But, yeah. Yeah, just talking about the characteristics and features, maybe this being one, like uh-huh. our hermeneutic. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm finding many of my dis- discontents with friends do not like, you know, um, a Christ-centered uh, hermeneutic. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Uh, that's right, and that was my next thing, is not just the unity of Scripture, not just the identity of God's people, but also a redemptive historical hermeneutic that we talked a lot about when we did um, when we did biblical theology. You can go back on the church website and go to the very beginning of biblical theology, where I kind of interact with either the grammatical historical versus the redemptive historical, and what all those things entail, and what's different about those uh, hermeneutics, acts of hermeneutics. What is hermeneutics? What's the what's the word mean? <laughs> That's right. What's that? Interpreting the Bible. Yeah, that's right. It's the science of interpretation. You know what I mean? So how are we going to interpret the Word of God? Um, that's very important. Finally, real quick here, let me see, before I close here this section, I just wanted to read on the people of God, you know, that... Um, oh, I don't have time for this. but Just to give you maybe a appreciation for the scope of when we say the people of God, you know, I wrote down... 
that um, the people that God basically is saving by grace, that going back to the covenant of grace. That's why we don't have time right now to get into that. But uh, I just put down that this is God's true Israel, nation, people, bride, vineyard, Jerusalem, circumcision, temple, race, priesthood, children, and kingdom. All of those terms are utilized of the church. And so dispensationalists will tell you, don't mix the two. The problem is the New Testament mixes the two. And so now you have a big problem because, I mean, Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, we are the true circumcision. I mean, think about that. What do you say? Because that's huge. You know what I mean? Uh, in Romans chapter 1, he goes into this whole thing about how the, the circumcision, right, is attacking the Gentiles. He uses their own language in a way, in a redemptive way, in a, in a salvation, salvific way, and says we are the true circumcision. Remarkable. I think... Romans chapter 2, verse 28 and 29, uh, the Apostle Paul puts it very explicitly. He says, who's a true Jew? A true Jew is this, you know, someone whose praises come from God, somebody who's been circumcised in the heart, not out externally. He says that is the, what a true Jew is. That's just fascinating, fascinating. Uh, the next one then is, again, redemptive historical hermeneutics, and that's, that is also, remember, these are all features of covenant theology. Covenant theology operates along these planes of thought. What is redemptive historical hermeneutics? We just said it. It's, in a sense, tracing the gospel through the entire Bible. Tracing the gospel through the entire Bible. Understanding it in a Christocentric way. Understanding how that one salvation is uh, revealed in all of uh, Revelation, from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, That's like a really oversimplified way of saying it. Redemptive historical hermeneutics, I would say, at its very core, what the focus of redemptive historic hermeneutics is, and we've talked a lot about this, is the dual states of Christ, right? It's the dual estates of of Christ, not Christ's, of Christ. What are the dual estates of Christ? Anyone? Humiliation, exaltation. That is what we're tracing throughout the entire Bible as we either promise Christ or we, uh, we receive Christ. Or, you know, promises are made about Christ and then we see promises are kept in Christ. And what are the promises that are made about Christ? The promises are made about his dual estates, that he would come, that he would suffer, that he would die, and then he would rise again and that he would be exalted. They would sit at the right hand of God. That is what is taught throughout all the messianic passages of Scripture. That's what we're seeing is, is Christ uh, entering into his glory through suffering. And man, I have so much I want to say about that, but I cannot. And so the last one is the view of the OT, the view of the OT. Um, I love this. Covenant theology helps us. To see, and I would say this, covenant theology improves our view of the Old Testament. Um, This has to be said because I think today so many of us need our view of the Old Testament to be improved. Uh, We need to understand that the Old Testament is absolutely uh, essential, that it is, that it is, you know, the Bible um, was revealed in two testaments, right? But those testaments are not one is more important than the other. It's a, these are all God's words, right? Matter of fact, if you look at the New Testament, every time the New Testament quotes the scriptures, 99% of the time, 
What scriptures are they quoting? The Old Testament. Isn't that remarkable? Think about that. Apostolic doctrine can be established by quoting the Old Testament. That's remarkable. And they do it over and over and over and over again. It's amazing. I think, let me see if I can get this right. I think there are only 11 or 12 chapters in the New Testament that do not have some either reference, citation, allusion, or or direct quotation to the Old Testament. Every other place in the whole New Testament is full of it, right? It's full of these citations. Um, Let me read you this. Can I read this? This is, he says, he says, this is my notes. (laughs) I've been studying too much. Covenant theology helps us to see the Old Testament as possessing Christ, setting forth Christ, mostly in types, shadows, but also in theophanies like the angel of the Lord. It promises Christ, anticipates Christ, typifies Christ. For example, Melchizedek, Adam, David, the Passover, the priesthood, the tabernacle, the temple. Covenant theology is is Christ-centered because none of the biblical covenants make sense without him. While all other covenant servants fail, Israel, Adam, Moses, Christ alone upholds God's covenant demands, fulfills God's covenant promises, satisfies God's covenant curse, and perfects God's covenant people. In every Old Testament covenant administration, this work of Christ is proleptically foresignified. In other words, proleptic means it's anticipated. We are anticipating Christ in every single covenant administration. Um, Too many Christians today have Marcion undertones in their view of the Old Testament. What do I mean by that? Remember, Marcius was that heretic that rejected the Old Testament. He thought it was God of wrath in the Old Testament, God of grace in the New Testament. What do we need the God of wrath for anymore That now that love and grace have come? You see what I'm saying? No, absolutely. But a lot of Christians practically operate that way, right? You want to get to the good stuff, go to the New Testament. (laughs) As if Christ is not in the Old Testament. But he's... uh, I, I read... Either I read somewhere or I wrote somewhere, but that in many ways, brace yourself, the Old Testament shows us aspects of Christ that you can't learn from the New Testament. Anybody want to challenge or agree or disagree or protest or throw tomatoes or <laughs> or give an example or... I, mean, I would agree with that because first century Christians, the scriptures were the Old Testament, you know, and the letters of Paul were just coming out. So, yeah, I, mean, I would agree with that. Yeah, yeah. We see certainly we, we see the judgment of Christ all throughout the, the Old Testament. Ultimately, He's going to be the one to judge the world, um, and. And we see certainly much judgment in the Old Testament. And this is exactly what Christ is going to discuss upon the day of the Lord. Sure. Yeah. Amen. I just think when you look at passages like the suffering servant in Isaiah, I mean, all the way from chapter 40 of Isaiah all the way to chapter 53, um, there is so much Christological information there. We really, really get an insight into the consciousness of Christ, what he went through, 
um, when you look at the Psalms, um, you know, I told you guys we're going to probably preach all the way to Psalm 3, and then after that we'll probably do a book. But I am more and more convinced that Psalm 3 is deeply Christological, if, if, if not absolutely uh, explaining to us, in a sense, the emotional, uh, the suffering of Christ in, in Psalm 3. It's all about agony and anguish and battling enemies and being oppressed and, and all of these things. Remember who's speaking in Psalm 3. It's the king. And in Psalm 2, he had already established that the king is the Messiah. <laughs> and, 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 and here's the thing. The Psalms were all written in different time periods, right? Somebody took the Psalms at some point in Jewish history and collected them and put them in a specific order. Um, and there's a lot of debate as to uh, does that order have any meaning or purpose? Why did they do it like that? I think there is. Guess why? Um, there's a textual variant in the New Testament. Don't ask me where it's at right now. That quotes Psalm 2 as Psalm 1, saying it's the first psalm. And the reason they believe that that happened is because there's early tradition that suggests that the people of God originally viewed Psalm 1 and 2 as a single psalm. And so it's almost like the righteous man is the king. And so that's what I'm saying is that whoever put the psalms together, I think they definitely understood that the psalms were messianic in character. And so I think Psalm 1, 2, and 3 lay the foundation for everything else that you're going to read in the psalms. Everything else. All the royal psalms. All the psalms about David and anguish. All the the psalms of petition. All the psalms of lamentation. All of those kinds of coronation psalms. Psalm 2. It's just fascinating. Okay, let's fast forward and let's now talk about the covenant of redemption. Okay? So it's kind of like you got to debrief here for a second, reorient the mind, and get ready to go in a different direction. The covenant of redemption. What is the covenant of redemption? Anybody want to take a stab at it? Anyone? Anyone? Anyone want to define the covenant of redemption the best they can, I guess, by memory? Yes, sir? The intertributarian covenant together to redeem people in Christ. Amen. I couldn't say it better myself. Uh, but this is what I wrote. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't think it is better. <laughs> so point number one, the covenant of redemption defined. And this is the way that I defined it. It's not long, but it is... Um, along the lines of what Jonathan just said, the covenant of redemption is an eternal, intra-Trinitarian covenant where the persons of the Godhead are in agreement as to the means and objects of redemption. The means and objects of redemption. In other words, how they're going to save and who they're going to save. Any questions about that? Can you say that over? Sure. It's on the tape. The covenant of redemption is an eternal, intra-Trinitarian covenant where the persons of the Godhead are in agreement as to the means and the objects of redemption. Um, 
Yes, sir. Fit in the covenant of works were created in eternity. They both existed before creation. Well, I guess I'd have to, I'd have to determine what do you mean by existed in eternity. Yeah, the covenant of works is the creation covenant, so it's temporal, right? The covenant of redemption is the pre-temporal, that's why I said eternal covenant. Okay, so I, I got that wrong. Would you say the covenant of works came after the covenant Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I would say it came after the covenant of redemption, and it stems from the covenant of redemption. And it I, I maybe even mirrors the covenant of redemption. There's a kind of an earthly replica of the covenant of redemption, because here's a question I have for you. What is the nature of the covenant of redemption? Is it a grace covenant or a works covenant? Okay, everybody who says grace, get up and move to this side of the building. (laughs) The covenant of redemption is a covenant of works. It is on the basis of the son's obedience that redemption will be accomplished. Uh, The covenant of redemption is stressing that the son has to earn redemption. See, I, I think people have even written books entitled, So We Are Saved by Works? Question mark. In a sense, we are, <laughs> because we're saved by the works of Christ, right? Um, what is grace? Right? Somebody quote Shailen. Come on, K-Dub. Come on, K-Dub. <laughs> no, that's not the lyric I'm thinking of. No, is it is it is it Shylin or was it Tim Tim what's his No, Timothy Brindle. I think one of those dudes in the rap. Yeah, I like Christian rap. <laughs> they said something like that grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. That's exactly right. If we just describe grace as unmerited favor, we haven't gone far enough, right? Because grace is much more than just God giving favor to people who cannot merit it. In one sense, grace being unmerited favor is a very poor description of grace because it's not just that we cannot merit favor, but what about our demerit? It's not just that, you know, because we cannot merit the favor of God almost implies a neutrality, right? It doesn't explicitly state what state we're in, right? But, But grace is really God giving us his favor, God giving his favor to people who not only cannot merit the grace of God, but are in a terrible demerit situation, right? We're in the red. Um, And even then, when the grace of God is given to us, it is solely on the basis of Christ's obedience, his perfect life, his perfect death, and his surety, the fact that he stood in our place covenantally, right? In our place as our substitute, Yes, sir. It's not as if sin was just done away with. No. Right. You know, it's not like it's just, oh, okay, it's just gone, right? Mm-hmm. There was something done in a sense to make it gone. Yeah. Why, why can God cast your sin to the, to the bottom of the sea and remember it no more? Why? He's poured out his wrath. He's poured out his wrath, and his wrath has been absorbed by his son, and his son has buried your sin with him in the grave. Yeah. See, if you look at just the greatest aspect, right, it's in his justice and his being magnified or represented, but the fact that he still poured out his wrath shows his justice, his holiness, his hatred of sin, and therefore he extended grace. 
Absolutely. Let me read a J.B. Fesco's book on covenant theology, or at least uh, J.B. Fe- it's out on the bookstore. It's a book on the Trinity and the covenant of redemption. I cannot put it down. I can't put that book down. It's so good. Um, not that I agree with every little point, but I can't put that book down. It's so remarkable. This is his definition of the covenant of redemption. He says, now listen here. He says, at its most foundational level, the covenant of redemption is a pretemporal intertrinitarian agreement among Father, Son, and Spirit to plan and to execute the redemption of the elect. The covenant entails the appointment of the Son as surety of the covenant of grace who accomplishes the redemption of the elect through his incarnation, perfect obedience, suffering, resurrection, and ascension. The covenant, I would, I would add to that, outpouring of the Spirit. But anyway, the covenant of redemption is also the root of the Spirit's role to anoint and equip the Son for his mission as surety and to apply his finished work to the elect. You can get the tape or I can give you the, I can give you the quote right here, but... Uh, um, Incredible, incredible. It just, the covenant of redemption stands behind the whole drama of the life of Christ, right? It's almost like when we're reading the Gospels, one question that kind of nags at us is, why? Why like this? Why this? Why the temptation? Why the miracles? Why, uh, I don't know, why the baptism? Why the... You know, why this? Why that? Why does he do it like this? Why does he do it like that? Right? And what the covenant of redemption helps us to understand is that that this is, that behind that is God's sovereign plan that he had already marked out for the son, and the son had to go and he had to execute it. Right? And that's why he says in John chapter 8, verse 29, I always do the things that are pleasing to the Father. We, We see that and we go, okay, so Jesus was really good. No. Well, yes. He was really good, but when he says pleasing to the Father, what I would say is that what he's saying is that unlike all other covenant representatives, Israel, Adam, Moses, David, whoever, who were not well-pleasing to the Lord, he was. Remember the Mount Transfiguration, Matthew chapter 17? What does it say? It says, um, you know, there's Moses, there's Elijah, Peter, you know, Lord bless him, wants to go to Home Depot and build tabernacles. And then it says, as Peter is talking, the voice comes down in a theophany, right? Because that's what it is. It's, an appear, it's, a, it's a manifestation of God intruding into this age and saying, this is my beloved son, and in him I am well pleased. Wow, right? It's something that God can say, a hundred percent. Whereas he could not say that about any other covenant people or servants or mediators, only of his son. Uh, it's uh, called The Trinity and the Covenant of Rede- Redemption by J.V. Fesco. I think there's one or two on the table. Y'all don't like fight over that book, okay? <laughs> huh? <laughs> no, I don't. I didn't even know I was going to give a plug for that book. But you see why we need, I mean, this little hour that we've just spent here is just totally insufficient for what needs to happen. <sighs> okay, well, let's go to worship. And-